Israel now allowing civilians to leave critical areas in Gaza, also agreeing to military pauses. Here why Secretary of State Antony Blinken says even more should be done. A judge is allegedly denying former President Trump his due process rights. A New York congresswoman says the judge is one of Trump's cases is biased. She now asks the state Supreme Court to intervene. Ghost guns elude Biden administration regulations. A federal appeals court rejects the rules targeted at the proliferation of the homemade weapons. Each American soldier has their own unique story behind the service. How a digital project is now sharing their legacies with the world this Veterans Day. The U.S. arm of a Chinese banking giant hit by a ransomware attack. The Industrial and Commercial Bank of China says it's trying to recover from the attack. Sending over $50 billion to Ukraine. That's the European Union's plan. However, one country is planning to throw a wrench in the works. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now to our top stories. President Biden and China's Xi Jinping have confirmed a meeting in California next Wednesday. This will mark their first meeting in nearly a year amid heightened tensions between the two countries. Biden officials said the leaders would meet in the San Francisco Bay Area, but declined to offer further details. Issues on the agenda include the Israel-Hamas war, trade, Taiwan, and managing U.S.-China relations. Next week's meeting comes as the United States braces for what could be a bumpy year for U.S.-China relations. Both Taiwan and the U.S. have elections next year. The U.S. wants to reaffirm the status quo with Taiwan and warn Beijing against election interference at home. The White House said weeks ago that it expected Biden and Xi to meet on the sidelines of the APEC summit. The week-long gathering kicks off on Saturday. Civilians in Gaza today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken commented on recent developments. Israel has agreed to four-hour pauses in specific areas, as well as two humanitarian corridors, to allow people to move out of harm's way. These steps will, um, will save lives and will enable more assistance to get to Palestinians in need. At the same time, much more needs to be done uh, to protect civilians and uh, to make sure that humanitarian assistance reaches them. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Meanwhile, thousands of Palestinians left northern Gaza today, heading south. That's to flee the combat zone in the north. Ground battles are intensifying in Gaza City, which is in the north. Israel previously split Gaza in two, creating a northern and southern part. They're now allowing civilians to pass. The Senate has unanimously passed a resolution condemning this October 7th attack on Israel. The resolution demands that hostages be given medical care and released immediately, and that the U.S. lead a global effort to free all hostages. The resolution was co-sponsored by over 40 senators from both parties. The resolution condemned Hamas for its, quote, premeditated, coordinated, and brutal terrorist attacks on Israel. And the U.S. Treasury is planning more sanctions against the Hamas terror group. 
The new measures will include a crackdown on its use of crypto assets. A Treasury official said efforts to block funding will focus on helpers in third countries and involve coordination with allies to shut down those avenues. The official said crypto is not where Hamas funding comes from. However, he noted crypto use would increase if the industry doesn't add safeguards and work to prevent money laundering. Texas police are investigating spray paint left on a congresswoman's district office. The graffiti condemned the Republicans' support for Israel in the war with Hamas. Representative Monica De La Cruz is a first-term congresswoman. Her district is on the U.S.-Mexico border. A spokesperson said her office was vandalized twice this week. Messages included, Monica murders and Israel kills Jews too. The majority of both parties have historically stood firmly on the side of Israel. But divisions have emerged in the Democratic Party about the U.S. response to the war. De La Cruz said the vandalism would not silence her support for Israel. The McAllen Police Department said, learned of the vandalism on Tuesday. Authorities added that the investigation is ongoing. In Georgia, a man was charged with threatening to kill GOP Representative Mary Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Greene, her family and her staff. 34-year-old Sean Patrick Cirillo of Macon is accused of calling Green's office and making those threats on Wednesday. He's charged with using communication devices to make threats, which is a felony offense. Taylor Green issued a statement saying the threat forced her to close her district office. She also thanked police for acting swiftly. Allegations of bias against a New York judge. A congresswoman says the judge holds a clear bias against former President Trump. She's now filing a complaint against the judge in Trump's civil fraud trial. The trial is being held in New York City. Today, New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik filed a judicial ethics complaint against the judge in the case. She says Judge Arthur Engeron holds a clear bias against Trump. For example, the judge allegedly told Trump's attorney that the former president is, quote, a bad guy and that prosecutors should go after him. The congresswoman also says the judge failed to grant Trump his due process rights. She also brought up the gag order against the former president. Stefanik argues this violates Trump's protected political speech. She filed her complaint with the New York State Commission on Judicial Conduct. She says the court must take action to restore a just process in the case. Senator Joe Manchin is not running for re-election. Instead, he'll be on tour feeling out voters' interests in, quote, to, quote, mobilize the middle. We speak with Jeff Cruer, host of Ringside Politics, about the move that puts Democrats on the defenses in West Virginia. Jeff Cruer, thank you for joining us. Joe Manchin said yesterday he's not running for re-election. What's been the response to this on Capitol Hill so far? Well, Republicans are jubilant because I think now they think that they can really take control of the Senate. Uh, West Virginia is a Republican state, went for Donald Trump big time. Joe Manchin really was at a step with the uh, people of West Virginia. He knew he was going to lose. A popular governor is running for that seat. So Joe Manchin made really a smart political decision. Uh, so now he can look at possibly running for president and, uh, and, and maybe uh, continuing his political career that way. But he had no chance to win a uh, Senate race. Uh, so that's why he decided to drop out. 
And, you know, he's saying that he's going to travel the country to see if there's interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle. What do you think he'll find? You know, I think it'll be interesting because RFK Jr. is, is sort of your independent candidate right now. In one poll, I saw he had 22 percent of the vote. So uh, those that don't like the Republicans and Democrats right now are gravitating toward him. Uh, you've got Jill Stein, who said she's going to be running. You've got Cornell West. So it could become a crowded field. And Democrats hate the sound of this because if, if uh, Joe Manchin runs or Larry Hogan or they run together, I think that's going to take more votes away from Biden. I think that'll just help ensure Donald Trump uh, gets back into the White House. So we'll see. I don't think there's certainly not enough of a movement for Joe Manchin or a third party candidate to get elected president. Now, where might Democrats look for another Senate seat if they can't count on Manchin? <laughs> you know, this is going to be a bad election for them because most of the seats that are going to be in play are, uh, are Democrat seats. So they've got to defend a lot. Uh, Republicans only need to pick up one. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for them. Uh, this was one that they were probably going to lose anyway. Now I think it's guaranteed uh, that they're going to lose. So uh, Democrats are in a situation where, you know, they might have a better chance of taking back control of the House than of retaining control of the Senate. Why is that? Because there are only a few votes away in the House. And there are a lot of Republicans in vulnerable seats uh, that are sort of uh, swing districts. And, and possibly, you know, the Democrats, if they can... You know, find a candidate. Uh, if Joe Biden doesn't run and there's a candidate that can create some enthusiasm, then uh, maybe they could sweep to uh, gain some seats in the House. We'll see. Uh, I would just say that's something that could could happen for the Democrats. So Republicans need to be very wary because uh, this is going to be a, uh, I think it's going to be a close race. Yeah, you know, Tuesday night's elections showed some strong support for democratic positions, especially on abortion. What do the results tell us about the current political reality in this country? Current political reality is that we're a divided country. Uh, Democrats have some issues uh, in their favor that they used on Tuesday, such as marijuana, such as abortion. And I think it could help them in, in some of these swing districts that I was talking about. Uh, certainly Ohio, let's look at Ohio. That's considered to be a Republican state now. And uh, the, the, the abortion measure won by 13 percentage points, so it had a big victory. So what they're going to try to do now is put similar type measures on the ballot uh, to generate Democrat votes in 2024. You know, Republicans did something similar in 2004 to help George W. Bush get elected. They had all these measures on the ballot for defense of marriage. Back then, drawing uh, evangelical voters, it helped uh, George W. Bush. Now you're going to see Democrats use the abortion issue to help them in these swing states. They think that that could be their key to victory. All right, Jeff Cruer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. After the break, a new study finds that COVID lockdowns increased the risk of ADHD among 10-year-olds. We have insights from the founder of the Brownstone Institute. Man drives into Florida deputies. Two Florida deputies seriously injured after a man intentionally drove a car into them. More on the shocking crash in just a moment here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. The IRS has just announced new tax brackets for 2024. Here's the good news. The brackets are now up by 5.4%. That means some taxpayers could see a break on their taxes for the upcoming year. The standard deduction is also increasing by 5.4%. The new deduction for married couples will increase by $1,500. Single taxpayers will see a rise of $750. And a new study says pandemic lockdowns increased ADHD among 10-year-old children. The University of Copenhagen in Denmark's research says kids who already had a genetic risk of developing the condition saw a significant increase in diagnosis after the pandemic. To discuss this and more, we spoke with the president and the founder of Brownstone Institute, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on our show. This latest study is what's becoming one more in a long string of studies that seem to prove the harmful effects of lockdown on children. Tell us more about what we've found in the various studies so far. Uh, we, they keep pouring out. Epoch Times is doing a great job covering it, unlike the rest of the mainstream media. But yes, the learning losses are huge and the psychological impact on vast numbers of students that were kept out of school and had their lives so fundamentally disrupted has been uh, quite devastating. Like we've never seen anything like this in uh, many, many generations really on record at all. And the whole subject frustrates me very much because of course we predicted this uh, from the very beginning, to the very outset. We knew for sure this was going to be the impact and the, and the fact that the teachers unions and the public health officials pretended uh, that it wasn't going to be devastating for the kids uh, yes. was appalling. Tell me more about how this discrepancy between people who think that we knew and those who think that we we didn't know, because we, we do have a recent piece out by New York Magazine characterizing the lockdowns as a, an experiment that failed, and yet here you are saying that we there was evidence pointing to the fact that this wouldn't work or would have well, harmful e effects. Yeah, even from, from March and April 2020, uh, I was publishing articles and writing articles uh, predicting uh, tremendous psychological trauma as a result of unemployment, uh, the disruption of people's routines, learning losses among the kids, a decline in, in health by virtue of the closure of the hospitals. Uh, the, uh, the the separation of, of families that took place due to the extreme travel restrictions even between states, uh, to say nothing of it internationally. Uh, this kind of lockdown policies were, uh, were an experiment, a science experiment conducted on the whole population. And it was obvious from the very outset that it would, it would completely fail. It only worked on the computer models, but it didn't work in real life and we're left with the carnage, uh, the uh, population-wide trauma. And again, I'm so grateful for Epoch for talking about it because hardly anybody else is. Considering that lives were on the line, what other options would you say there were? Well, the old public health uh, wisdom was that you let society go on as normal, particularly on, among the non-vulnerable populations. You don't want to cause panic. You don't want to cause trauma. Uh, you certainly don't uh, you know, quarantine healthy people and shut down businesses and that you focus your efforts on the vulnerable population. We knew this. Uh, this was 800 Yale University affiliated scientists signed a document on March 2nd, 2020, saying exactly this. The, the Great Barrington Declaration, which came out seven months later, said that again. And, and Fauci tried to censor it and smear them. Um, you know, I'm sorry to say that the whole purpose of lockdowns was to wait for the vaccine. That was the idea. 
I, I did not know that at the time. I thought the world had just gone insane. But the purpose was to to buy time so they can get a vaccine and then inoculate the entire population against the disease. And that, of course, did not work either. Yeah, and so it's a, a tremendous calamity. Yeah, and considering the number of experts, as you just pointed out, out there at the early stages of the pandemic, yeah. warning about lockdowns, um, Right. And considering the media's responsibility to really um, take a look at all the evidence out there and account for, do their research really, what do you uh -huh. think um, the media needs to do in terms of establishing a sense of trust between the public and themselves, especially considering, you know, the possibility for future pandemics and public health crises? Uh, you know, at least we need some honesty, a start, some honesty, which we have not had uh, yet. That article you mentioned uh, in New York Magazine by Joe Nocera and his co-author uh, was the, really the very first, I would say, sort of mainstream uh, full accounting of of the lockdowns that happened. And I immediately, I couldn't believe it. It actually appeared. It's from it's an excerpt from the book called The Big Fail. And immediately got on the phone with the author and I congratulated him for it. And we've got plans to get together in a few weeks to share research back and forth. But that was actually the very first mainstream uh, discussion of this after three and a half years. It seems incredible, but we need a lot more in order to begin the process of winning back the trust. Right. And I just want to briefly check in about, you know, the very idea of lockdowns started with China's response to the pandemic. And given that China's ruled by a dictatorship, given the subsequent waves of COVID that have gone through China, even after the rest of the world had kind of started to manage it, and given the findings about our own lockdowns here and the harmful effects of them, what lessons do you think that we should draw from that? Well, one is to not send a junket of delegates from the NIH to Wuhan, you know, at the beginning of a pandemic. I mean, what happened was that Fauci's associates and many people from the uh, UK and elsewhere around the world got on, on chartered flights to Wuhan and got escorted around by the CCP and said, oh, look how great our lockdowns are. We've controlled the virus. And this was sponsored by the World Health Organization. And the World Health Organization got bamboozled and tricked by the communists. I mean, it's something incredible. The report came out on February 26, 2020. And then immediately, you know, everybody in the West said, oh, let's do just like the communists, because that's what the World Health Organization tells us to do. I mean, it's the most incompetent, uh, brain-dead, uh, rotten thing uh, in my lifetime in terms of uh, public health policy. That's exactly what happened. Uh, everybody believed. And now we know that everything that the World Health Organization was told on that junket trip was a lie. It was a lie from the very beginning. But they did it anyway. And that's why the world locked down, was, in, was to copy the communists in Wuhan. Incredible. Right. Yes, incredible. Thank you so much. Jeffrey Tucker, okay. senior columnist with the Epic Times and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Really appreciate it. A federal appeals court has ruled against the Biden administration's regulations on ghost guns. The rule targeted the rapid spread of the homemade weapons. Ghost guns can be assembled from kits without a background check. Such firearms are difficult for law enforcement to trace. The Biden rule updated the definition of firearm, frame, and receiver under the Gun Control Act of 1968. The appeals court sided with a group of firearms owners, gun rights groups, and manufacturers. The three-judge panel said the ATF's rule was unlawful 
One judge said the agency's rule was a clear attempt to overstep its authority. The judge added that it was the role of Congress, not the agency, to legislate. Ten alleged members and associates of the Gambino crime family have been indicted for extortion. The defendants are accused of trying to dominate New York's garbage and demolition industries. Allegations include assaulting a demolition company employee with a hammer. One of the men charged allegedly setting a fire in front of a trash truck business owner's house. Federal prosecutors say the men also embezzled from unions. They're also accused of rigging bids in the demolition and trash industries between 2017 and 2021. The defendants include an alleged captain in the Gambino family and nine alleged soldiers and associates. Now to Florida, where two deputies were critically injured while responding to a call. And a warning, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing. The Hillsborough County deputies responded to a call yesterday morning from a woman afraid of her son. The son was in a car when deputies arrived, but he refused to speak to them and drove off. But he quickly returned to the home and crashed into the two men who were standing outside of their patrol cars. They were airlifted to a hospital with serious leg injuries. One deputy may have had, may have had his leg amputated. The driver of the car is facing three counts of attempted murder on a law enforcement officer. Baltimore's former top prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, was found guilty of perjury on Thursday. She was convicted of lying to withdraw funds early from her city employee retirement account. Mosby was convicted of falsely claiming work-related financial burdens in 2020. She fraudulently cited a pandemic relief measure in an effort to withdraw $90,000. Mosby became the youngest top prosecutor of any major U.S. city in 2014. The Baltimore state's attorney made headlines in 2015 following the death of Freddie Gray. She criminally charged six police officers involved in the 25-year-old's death. None were convicted. Mosby lost her bid for a third term after she was indicted. Both federal counts she faced carry a maximum penalty of five years in prison. Mayors from across the nation were in Los Angeles yesterday trying to find a way to combat homelessness. They were in the city for a gathering of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Some of their goals include coordinating a national strategy to combat the crisis and sharing successful practices. The mayors toured the city's infamous Skid Row to see the magnitude of the crisis. They also visited an area where repurposed shipping containers now provide temporary housing for unsheltered residents. Apple will pay $25 million to settle claims by the Department of Justice. The DOJ accused the tech giant of illegally favoring immigrants for specific jobs. The department said Apple did not recruit U.S. citizens or permanent residents for specific positions. It's a violation of a federal law that bars discrimination based on citizenship. It didn't specify which Apple jobs were affected by the recruitment procedures. The DOJ said the settlement is its largest ever involving such discrimination. Apple will pay nearly $6.8 million in civil penalties. About $18 million will go to an unspecified number of affected workers. Apple will be required to expand recruitment. According to the settlement, the company will also train employees on anti-discrimination laws. 
The U.S. will accept exports of Paraguayan beef next month after a 25-year hiatus. President Santiago Peña called the move a historical milestone on X. He added that the quarter-century-long process had involved extensive audits. The U.S. Embassy said Paraguay has successfully completed the review. The new regulations make Paraguay one of 18 countries permitted to export beef products to the U.S. The U.S. Embassy in Paraguay also praised the high quality of Paraguayan beef and Paraguay's food safety and animal health systems. The new rules take effect December 14th. When we come back, the leader of the Labour Party in the U.K. is under pressure over his stance on the conflict in Gaza. Hear more about the controversy over the push for a ceasefire. And a new blow to restaurants in Germany as the country puts an end to its pandemic era tax breaks. What does it mean for business owners? And what's behind declining birth rates in Europe? How cost of living factors into the years-long trend? We'll have the details soon when we return. Now here's the top news from Europe. Let's start with a Ukrainian soldier jailed in Russia. The Kremlin today says Russia is under no obligation to say where he's being held. The Ukrainian volunteer is convicted and jailed for trying to kill two civilians. Human rights group Amnesty International and others previously demanded to learn his whereabouts. Russia will only say that he's serving his sentence. Also in Russia today, President Vladimir Putin discussed the war in Ukraine. He visited a military headquarters once held by the Wagner Mercenary Group. Putin met with his military top staff, including Defense Minister Sergei Shogai. The Kremlin said he was shown new models of military equipment. And while Ukraine is working to become part of the European Union, Hungary says the EU shouldn't support that. Here's Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. Ukraine is not prepared in any way to engage in discussions with the ambition of EU membership. I would argue that Ukraine is as distant from EU membership as Hungary is from Jerusalem. The initiation of EU membership talks must not be started. This is the clear Hungarian stance. By mid-December, the leaders of the EU countries are due to decide on whether to invite Ukraine to begin membership talks. Any such decision requires unanimity among the bloc's 27 members. Hungary is seen as the main potential obstacle. Orban is also against financial support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. However, the EU says it would be able to work around any Hungarian veto for financial support to Ukraine. The bloc plans to give Ukraine over $50 billion. Two EU officials say the bloc will ask each of the other EU governments to set up their own aid packages with Kyiv. That's if Hungary vetoes the aid. Amid war in Ukraine and in Israel, Germany is now planning to increase defense spending. Chancellor Olaf Scholz today also spoke about a potential return to the military draft. Many of those present here were involved in organizing a new structure for the German army, which is no longer based on the draft. I therefore believe that it would not be a good idea to reverse everything again and to establish a totally different army from the one we have today. 
Germany, Austria, and Switzerland all used to have a mandatory draft for all military-aged men. The men had to complete a few months of basic training once in their lives. Germany abandoned the system, while Austria and Switzerland still have it in place. Although the German chancellor is again is against bringing back the draft, he did say Germany would adapt its defense budget. That's to ensure the country achieves the NATO spending target of 2% of GDP. The Department of Defense has approved a potential $2.5 billion sale of Abrams' main battle tanks to Romania. The move's hopes to bolster the nation's allies' capability amid the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war. The Defense Security Corporation Agency notified Congress of the possible arms sale on Thursday. The purchase would include 54 M1A2 battle tanks, combat recovery vehicles, and assault breacher vehicles. The proposed sale would also provide 54 machine guns, explosives, and 4,000 practice tracer rounds. The agency's approval follows a new $425 million military assistance package for Ukraine. The support includes laser-guided munitions to shoot down Russia's drones. Ukraine will also receive rockets, artillery rounds, javelins, and anti-tank weapons. And to round up headlines from Europe, we have news from Spain. Acting Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez moves closer to clinching another term in office. Today, he secured the backing of the Basque Nationalist Party. This comes just a day after securing the backing of the Catalan Separatist Party. Both Catalonia and the Basque country are regions in eastern Spain that are aiming for separation from the country. Now over to the UK. The leader of the Labour Party is under fresh pressure over his stance on the conflict in Gaza. Entity's Malcolm Hudson has more for us. Labour leader Sukhir Starmer faces more growing dissension from within his own party. One of his frontbenchers, Imran Hussain, resigned from the role in order to strongly advocate for a ceasefire to the fighting in Gaza. Starmer has been facing increasing pressure to make those same calls, both from the Labour grassroots as well as from some of his own MPs. At least 16 shadow ministers have either made calls for a ceasefire or shared those calls on social media, while around 30 Labour councillors have resigned from the Labour Party so far. Hussein is MP for Bradford East and was shadow minister for the New Deal for working people. He's been on Labour's front bench for almost eight years, serving under Jeremy Corbyn as shadow international development minister in 2016. And unusual for a frontbencher, he's also a member of the Socialist Campaign Group for Labour MPs. In his resignation letter, Hussein said his view on the conflict in Gaza differed substantially from Starmer's. Hussein said a ceasefire is essential to ending the bloodshed, to ensuring enough aid can get into Gaza and to help ensure the safe return of the Israeli hostages. Starmer has stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. Instead, he's following the government's call for a humanitarian pause in the fighting. His shadow education secretary, Bridget Philipson, said a ceasefire risks freezing the conflict in time and allowing Hamas to regroup and attack again. Despite Starmer's insistence that his party is united on protecting civilians in Gaza, over a third of Labour MPs have called for a ceasefire. Left-wing Labour MPs, that is the hard left, have broken ranks from Starmer and put forward an, an amendment to the King's speech. It's an attempt to force a vote over a call for a ceasefire in the Commons. Now, Hussein's resignation only further shows 
the growing stark divide within the Labour Party, and it raises the question of if there are more resignations on the way, and of if Starmer can withstand and resist this push that's trying to force him to change his position. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Germany is ending pandemic-era tax breaks for the hospitality industry. The move may deal a new blow to restaurants, with many already operating on low profit margins. Let's zoom in. Chef Omar Ben Hamu found opening his Berlin seafood restaurant tough enough amid the global health crisis. Then Russia invaded Ukraine. Basic foodstuffs became more expensive, interest rates started climbing, and a labor shortage set in. Now he faces another blow. Germany's government plans to end hospitality tax breaks put into place during lockdowns. Now we have more expensive products, now we have less labor force, and now we have to raise the prices. But if we raise the prices, people complain and they, they leave bad reviews. So what should we do? Just close and, you know, do something else? So we just raise the prices and, you know, let's move on. So I, I, I think we're still on a very dangerous spot. To support the industry during health crisis restrictions, the government slashed value-added tax for food at restaurants to 7%, but that is due to rise back up to 19% by the end of the year. Along Berlin's river, assistant manager Christine Kaminska says that this change will be reflected in her restaurant's menu. By updating the menu once a year, so to speak, we are planning a 20% increase on the food. And of course, we have to use this to offset rising accommodation costs. In this way, we can also guarantee that we can offer our employees contracts with higher pay scales. In these times, of course, you also have to make sure that you can somehow keep your employees. Food costs are rising. Everything is rising. We have to pass that on. And there are fears that price hikes could keep potential customers at home. The fiscally focused FDP party, which has control of the finance ministry in a three-way coalition, said it would cost $3.5 billion to keep the tax break going in 2024. Managing director of the German Hotel and Restaurant Association, Die Hoger, Ingrid Hartges, explained what this could mean for hospitality. We also conducted a survey, according to which 12,000 businesses said they would then give up. They would then close because they see no prospects. And I think you have to take that very seriously, at a time when there are no queues of business founders. The question is whether German restaurants are still struggling or have recovered well enough from the health crisis to withstand having the tax break removed. A decline in fertility rates has been observed in large parts of Europe for years. While there are different factors behind the trend, experts say the cost of living and economic uncertainty are the main reasons. NTD's at France correspondent David Vivas has the story. News about European birth rates aren't reassuring. Births in Italy are heading for a new record low this year. Recent data from the National Statistics Bureau points to a deepening of the country's long-standing demographic crisis. In 2022 as a whole, births fell to 393,000, the lowest number since the country's unification in 1861. The UK faces a similar situation. According to data released by the Office for National Statistics, or ONS, the number of births in England and Wales has fallen to its lowest in two decades. 2022 saw a drop of almost 20,000 births from the year before. 
Other countries join UK and Italy in the decline of birth. Official figures in Poland show a decline of 11% in the total of annual births. France, which has one of the highest birth rates in Europe, also see a record low birth rate since 2022. But this rate has been constantly declining for a year. Although there might be different factors to explain this trend, many experts point to the cost of living as a major cause. According to a survey from earlier this year, financial concerns are the number one reason for UK adults for putting off or not having kids. In Italy, Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni this month earmarked around £900,000 for measures to help Italian women combine work and motherhood. Lack of job security and a climate of economic uncertainty also appear to play big roles in Poland. In a scenario where the birth rate would continue to decrease, Europe's country would have to bear several consequences. One of those is the reduction of the native population sometimes in favor of population coming from abroad. This would be the case in France and UK. In England and Wales, according to the ONS, almost a third of all births came from non-UK-born mothers last year, an increase from 29% in 2021. In France, this proportion is the same. A third of newborn child have at least one parent born abroad. One conclusion pushed in both countries is that to avoid a demographic crunch and to keep the economy growth going on, having more migrants would be a last chance resort. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, each American soldier has their own unique story behind their service. Find out how a digital project is now sharing their legacies with the world this Veterans Day. And a nonprofit organization honors veterans with live buglers to play taps at funeral services. Find out more about their mission. Back to the news. The post office and many banks are closed today in honor of Veterans Day. But technically, the real holiday is on Saturday. President Woodrow Wilson, who also started the draft for World War I, originally proclaimed November 11th as Armistice Day in 1919. That was to mark the end of World War I on November 11th, 1918. It was believed to be, quote, the war to end all wars. Unfortunately, it was not the last major conflict. In 1954, after fighting in the Korean War ended, President Dwight D. Eisenhower officially renamed the November 11th holiday Veterans Day. Eisenhower led Allied forces to victory in World War II, which turned out to be a greater humanitarian disaster than the First World War. While the Veterans Day holiday does not move from November 11th, it's often celebrated on the Friday before or the Monday after if it falls on a weekend. While there is sometimes confusion, Memorial Day honors America's war dead, while Veterans Day pays tribute to everyone who wore a uniform to serve their country. Every member of the U.S. military has a unique story behind their service and sometimes their sacrifice. This Veterans Day, there's been an expansion of a digital project aimed at telling those stories and an opportunity for loved ones to share their legacy. Doesn't get any easier. At Riverside National Cemetery in Southern California, Linda Monroe makes a visit to her husband of 55 years, Bob Monroe. He was a Vietnam veteran, uh, very proud of being a Marine. 
as she researched Riverside ahead of his burial. She came across the Digital Veterans Legacy Memorial Project. Since then, she's crafted a page full of photos and tributes that tells the story of Bob's life in service and what's happened after. Being a family member, you can go in and create an account and add all of their military history and their accomplishments. James LaPaglia is a digital services officer with the Department of Veterans Affairs. He says the goal of the Veterans Legacy Memorial Project, or VLM, which started in 2019, is to tell the stories behind the VA markers at cemeteries like Riverside. Family members and battle buddies and friends can find their veterans in a digital space and honor them by telling stories, sharing memories. Veterans Affairs populates online pages with military service and cemetery information. Family, friends, and others can submit photos and mementos, and the public can search and learn. Educating about the veteran experience is just as important as family members and others being able to tell stories and remember their veteran. Ahead of this Veterans Day, the platform doubled to nearly 10 million profiles. It includes those buried in VA's national cemeteries, Department of Defense cemeteries like Arlington National Cemetery, VA-funded cemeteries, and now those buried in private cemeteries who have a VA marker to honor their service. Linda Monroe says her husband died of pneumonia and COVID-19 in January 2021. Since then, updating Bob's page has also continued a dialogue between her and her husband with updates on grandchildren and more. You're so used when you're married talking to each other and, and things that you remember or that happened. Creating a more vivid portrait of the life one veteran lived and the legacy that lives on. If you're looking for the page of a veteran you know, please search Veterans Legacy Memorial Project. The song Taps is something you'll hear at many funerals for veterans, but instead of a musician playing the melody at many services, a recording device plays it automatically. A veteran who has performed the somber tune for almost a quarter century wanted to change that. Of all the military bugle calls, none is more easily recognized, more apt to evoke emotion than the bugle call TAPS. TAPS is our national song of remembrance. It's a bugle call that was started during the Civil War and is actually started as a lights out call, but today is used as a final farewell to our military personnel. My name is Yari Villanueva. I am currently the uh, president of TAPS for Veterans, a nonprofit organization that helps provide live buglers for military funerals. I'm also the executive director of the Doughboy Foundation. TAPS for Veterans came about uh, because we saw a need for live buglers at military funerals. In the late 1990s, a lot of the military bands were being downsized. And because of that, uh, there was a lack of military buglers available to play at funerals. At first, they thought they could use a cassette recording. Then they had a CD that was put out. But it looked very awkward to bring a boombox into a cemetery. So the idea was to have an electronic bugle, that is, an instrument that had an insert in it that would, would play taps. However, 
we've always thought that the better option is to have a live bugler. However, unfortunately, the electronic bugler has taken precedence over a live musician. And this is something that we thought we could uh, address and something that we could do better. We could have a live bugler. That was the impetus for forming TAPS for Veterans. We thought that it would be great to honor all veterans with a live performance of TAPS and setting up a system whereby a family in need could reach out to us on our website and, and get a bugler so that we could honor that veteran. We have well over 1,200 buglers around the country who are willing to step up and serve. The emotion of a person playing it, the, the music coming from their heart, you know, that goes through the tubing out, at, out to the people hearing it is really important. Um, a live performance is just so, uh, so much preferable over than a recorded one. I mean, no one wants to go to a symphony hall and uh, sit and listen to a recording of a symphony. They want to see and hear the live musicians playing that. We understand how important it is to, to have the, the recording, but it's really important and paramount that a live bugler, bugler be used, especially when you have one who's there willing to give their services to honor that veteran. And at the bottom line, that's what it's all about, honoring that veteran for his, his or her service to our country. Many restaurants and businesses have deals for veterans this weekend, some even starting today. Here's just a small sample of the freebies veterans and active duty military can get. This morning at Denny's, a free Grand Slam breakfast. But don't worry if you missed it, there are plenty of other breakfast offers, like a free donut at Dunkin' on Saturday, coffee and a donut at Krispy Kreme, or a breakfast combo at Wednesday, Wendy's. At Starbucks on Saturday, vets can get a free hot or iced coffee. And at IHOP until 7 p.m. on Saturday, a free pancakes or a pancake combo. Applebee's is also offering a free meal for dine-in on Saturday. Lowe's on Saturday is giving out free collectible pins to the first 150 veteran customers at each store. For most of the deals, you do need to show a valid military ID. The U.S. Marine Corps is celebrating its 248th birthday today. The Continental Congress established the Marines on November 10, 1775, in the lead-up to the American Revolution. The first recruiting headquarters was in the Tun Tavern on Water Street in Philadelphia. That's considered to be the birthplace of the Marines. Since then, the, the few and the proud have fought for America both on land and sea. In World War I, shocked German troops called them devil dogs for their ferocious tenacity. The Marines are the military's only branch that does not have a shortage of recruits. That's without any special bonuses. Recruiters say the only reward recruits need is to be able to call themselves Marines. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
Israel now allowing civilians to leave critical areas in Gaza, also agreeing to military pauses. Here why Secretary of State Antony Blinken says even more should be done. A judge is allegedly denying former President Trump his due process rights. A New York Congresswoman says the judge in one of Trump's cases is biased. She now asks the state Supreme Court to intervene. And hackers hit the U.S. arm of the Industrial and Commerce Bank of China. The ransomware attack also disrupted the U.S. Treasury market. A nonprofit organization honors veterans with live buglers to play taps at funeral services. Find out more about their mission. Allegations of bias against a New York judge, a congresswoman says the judge holds a clear bias against former President Trump. She's now filing a complaint against the judge in Trump's civil fraud trial. The trial is being held in New York City today. New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik filed a judicial ethics complaint against the judge in the case. She says Judge Arthur Engeron holds a clear bias against Trump. For example, the judge allegedly told Trump's attorney that the former president is, quote, a bad guy and that prosecutors should go after him. The congresswoman also says the judge failed to grant Trump his due process rights. She also brought up the gag order against the former president. Stefanik argues this violates Trump's protected political speech. She filed her complaint with the New York State Commission on Judicial Conduct. She says the court must take action to restore a just process in the case. Two members of the House are not running for re-election in 2024. Congress members Derek Kilmer and Brad Wenstrup made separate announcements yesterday. Kilmer is a Democrat from Washington State. He represents a district in the western part of the state that's safely blue. In a message on social media, Kilmer said it is time for the next chapter in life. Wenstrup is a Republican from Ohio. His district is south of Columbus and includes part of the Cincinnati area. It's the most Republican district in the state. Wenstrup said in a video message that he's ready to spend more time with his family. Both of them were elected in 2012. So far, 15 Democrats and 8 Republicans in the House have said they are not running again in 2024. Pro-life advocates are looking for new strategies after Tuesday's election. The 2023 vote in Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia all went in favor of the pro-abortion movement. We hear from pro-life thought leader Josh Hammer about what the path forward for his movement might be. Hammer is also the senior editor-at-large at Newsweek and host of The Josh Hammer Show. Josh Hammer, thank you for joining us. Pro-lifers took a hit in multiple states as a result of Tuesday night's elections. What happened? So there is an unfortunate bit of a paradox here, and I don't say this happily as someone who is an active, staunch pro-lifer. I have marched in Marches for Life. I have founded pro-life student organizations. I've spoken to pro-life conferences. But there is a simple reality right now between where the voters are, including in these increasingly red states like Ohio and, and the policies that we are pushing. And, you know, in a situation like this, I think there are basically two options. One is the Albert Einstein approach, which is the definition of insanity, is keep on trying to do the same thing, see maybe it will work out one day. The second time is to kind of pause, soberly reassess where the voters are and try to do a better job of incrementally nudging, not trying to go for everything at once there. But it was obviously a very disappointing evening on Tuesday. And Josh, you've written about the need for pro-life advocates to employ prudence to advance their aims. 
elaborate on that for us? So the analogy that I and many others have drawn for a long time now is between the anti-abortion movement, the abortion abolition movement now in the 21st century, and the anti-slavery movement in the 19th century. You have to, you have to go back to that time. I mean, you know, Abraham Lincoln did not end slavery in America overnight. On the contrary, he was vehemently opposed by Thaddeus Stevens and the more radical Republicans at that time for not going so far so quickly. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to be drawn there as far as kind of just remembering that Yes, every day that abortion in America continues without it being fully abolished is a tragedy. Ultimately, tens and tens of millions of children since Roe versus Wade have perished in the womb and have not lived until uh, until being an, a child, let alone an adult. But we have to take this slowly. You know, justice doesn't always happen one day at a time there. We're going to have to try to do incremental 12, 15-week bans. I think anything more than that right now, unfortunately, unless it's a very, very, very red state, is really a bit more than we can muster at this time. So Donald Trump doesn't support a nationwide abortion ban just coming to him. He's on everyone's mind. How does this sit with pro-lifers? Well, I think pro-lifers probably will divide on that, right? But if you look at kind of the national pro-life organizations, folks like the Susan B. Anthony Leslie Marjorie Dannenfelser runs that formidable organization. She's certainly been critical of that. Look, I personally think that a 15-week national ban is perfectly reasonable. I, I really do. I mean, this this is a balancing act right now. I mean, we, we are trying to kind of meet the voters a little bit more where they are. I think going for a full abortion ban right now would be a stretch too far. But something like a 15-week ban, I mean, frankly, that is allowing the vast majority of abortions in America. From a pro-life perspective, it is not even remotely good enough. All that would do is put us on relatively equal footing with the countries of Western and Central Europe. So it's a good stepping stone. The polling on that issue, based on what I've seen, is, is basically sound. The voters do not necessarily disapprove of a very moderate measure along those lines there. But I think, again, pushing beyond that right yeah. now, it would really have to be specifically tailored to a very pro-life state. Josh, have we seen any elections where the 15-week ban that you're talking about has actually succeeded? Sure. I mean, here in Florida, where I live, Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week abortion ban and then won statewide in Florida by 19.4 percentage points. I mean, a lot of people thought that that would be just a, a terrible political strategy there. Look, there are any number of other kind of data points along those lines, right? I mean, Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Greg Abbott in Texas, Mike DeWine in Ohio, they all did sign yeah, I think they were all six-week abortion bans, actually, and they all won by massive double-digit margins in the gubernatorial re-election victories last November. So there are, there are a lot of data points that can, I think, you know, assuage our concerns. But unfortunately, what we saw in Ohio on Tuesday is that when this issue is teed up directly for the voters, we're getting outraised, we're getting outspent, we're getting outmobilized. So I think it's just time in general to take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit. But some pro-life policies obviously have to be enacted. And where does the pro-life movement go from here after Tuesday night's elections? Um, you know, you've talked about it a little bit, but what's next? So part of the problem is we're just getting massively outspent. I mean, the pro-abortion side right now has all the momentum. They have all the money. And we need conservative donors to basically just try to come out of the woodwork and start supporting our cause a bit more. I mean, I'm not sure where the conservative donors have been on this issue since the overturning of Roe. There was a lot of, of anti-abortion money for decades and decades that went into the overturning of Roe versus Wade, into the legal conservative movement, the Federal Society, organizations like that, of which I am a proud member. But 
we need a lot more money right now to actually get the voters out of their homes to get to the ballot box to now actually that we have the ability to vote on abortion. The, the Dobbs case gave us that. Now we have to go actually and get the money to get the voters to go vote on these policies at the ballot box themselves. All right, Josh Hammer, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you. Civilians in Gaza. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken commented on recent developments. Israel has agreed to four-hour pauses in specific areas, as well as two humanitarian corridors to allow people to move out of harm's way. These steps will, um, will save lives and will enable more assistance to get to Palestinians in need. At the same time, much more needs to be done uh, to protect civilians and uh, to make sure that humanitarian assistance reaches them. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Meanwhile, thousands of Palestinians left northern Gaza today, heading south. That's to flee the combat zone in the north. Ground battles are intensifying in Gaza City, which is in the north. Israel previously split Gaza in two, creating a northern and a southern part. They're now allowing civilians to pass. When we come back, U.S. private investment firms have poured more than $80 billion into China. Hear more about a new bill that aims to tackle the issue. China is replacing the use of the name Tibet with a Chinese term. What's Beijing's goal? And what could it mean for the Tibetan people? Thank you for staying with us. U.S. Senators introduced a bipartisan bill to require private equity firms to disclose how much they invest in China. The bill was introduced by Democratic Senator Bob Casey and Republican Senator Rick Scott. It's the latest effort to track U.S. investments to China. Joining us now to tell us more is NTD Business host Don Ma. Don, why was this bill introduced? What, what's the concern here? Well, Chris, uh, the concern is this. Uh, between 2018 and 2022, uh, U.S. private investment firms have poured more than $80 billion into China. Uh, this is according to Senator Casey's office. And he said in a statement that the American people deserve to know where and how their savings are being invested. Uh, you know, at the same time, there's credible fear that uh, U.S. dollars and know-how are aiding Beijing's tech advances to modernize its military. Uh, so the United States has sought to uh, tr crack down on U.S. investment in China. Um, so, Chris, there's a, a number of factors here that would warrant action from lawmakers. And I think some of them are real realizing this as well. And with this newly introduced legislation, it, it seems like that's exactly what they're aiming to do. Um, I guess it's only a question of how successful they will be at pushing this bill to become law at, at this point. So, Don, can you provide us with some specifics of the bill? Sure. Uh, the proposed measure aims to mandate private equity funds to provide annual disclosures regarding their invested assets in countries uh, like China, um, Iran, Russia, and North Korea. Uh, these disclosures would be submitted to the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, which would then in turn uh, be obligated to generate and publicly release a report based on that information. And additionally, the measure seeks to enhance transparency as well uh, by compelling private equity funds to disclose specific details about their involvement in security sales. Senator Rick Scott emphasized the critical need for transparency uh, because he's citing the advantage that adversaries like communist China would actually gain from the current lack 
of transparency. And in his statement, he highlighted the urgency of seizing the flow of American dollars to countries of concern. The measure uh, aligns with the broader strategy to safeguard national interests and financial resources by ensuring greater accountability and visibility into financial tra transactions, uh, of course, with nations that pose geopolitical threats. Can you tell us a bit about, a bit more about how China has benefited from U.S. investment, Don? Sure. Uh, U.S. capital has played a crucial role in fueling China's uh, rapid economic growth and, of course, as well as uh, military advancement. Foreign direct investment uh, from the U.S. has contributed to the development of industries, infrastructure, technology um, in China, of course. Uh, and with increased economic strength, uh, Beijing has gained more influence uh, in international organizations and the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, the country's uh, prominence on the global stage actually has been bolstered by the inflow of foreign capital, uh, which, of course, includes that from the U.S. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. And now a roundup of the biggest news from Asia today. A ransomware attack against the U.S. arm of a Chinese banking giant Hackers hit the New York-based U.S. subsidiary of the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, also known as ICBC. ICBC is China's largest commercial lender by assets. The ransomware attack disrupted trades in the U.S. Treasury market. ICBC said it was investigating the attack that disrupted some of its systems and making progress toward recovering from it. Cybersecurity experts say they believe the ransomware came from Russian hacking group Lockbit. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met his Indian counterpart in New Delhi today. Top of their agenda was security in the Indo-Pacific region and aggression by the Chinese regime. Austin said the U.S. is looking forward towards strengthening defense partnership between the two countries. Meanwhile, the Indian defense minister said, We increasingly find ourselves in agreement on strategic issues, including countering China's aggression, promoting a free and open Indo-Pacific, and addressing regional security challenges. We share a focus on maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region, recognizing the criticality of safeguarding vital sea lanes and promoting stability. The meeting took place during the annual 2 plus 2 dialogue, which also saw Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with his Indian counterpart. The annual meeting aims to boost defense cooperation and align the policy objectives of the two countries in the Indo-Pacific region. The U.S. and India are now working on landmark deals, including cooperating on semiconductor manufacturing. The U.S. is also planning to supply and manufacture engines for Indian fighter jets, and to supply MQ-9 Predator drones. At the same time, the U.S. is also in dialogue with China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kicked off a meeting with her Chinese counterpart yesterday in San Francisco. Yellen's talks with the Chinese regime's vice premier will last two days. She said the economic relationship between the U.S. and China is a critical take a look. The United States has no desire to decouple from China a full separation of our economies would be economically disastrous for both of our countries and for the world. We seek 
a healthy economic relationship with China that benefits both countries over time. The talks are designed to help lay the groundwork for an expected meeting between President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping next week, also in San Francisco. It will be on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, summit. Yellen has met with a host of Chinese officials throughout this year, and this isn't the first time she has assured China that the U.S. doesn't seek to decouple. Ahead of the recent meeting, Chinese state media laid out the regime's major concerns. Those are supply chain restrictions, restrictions on high-tech products such as advanced microchips, and tariffs on Chinese products. Souring relations between Japan and China now seem to be snagged on koi fish. Exports of the fish from Japan to China have come to a halt as the permit expired at the end of last month. Japanese officials said Japan submitted the necess necessary documents way ahead of the deadline but heard nothing back. So far, we haven't received any information from the Chinese side regarding the current status of the procedure or the reasons for it. So the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries are continuing to reach out to China and the authorities. Japanese officials say they will continue to approach China in order to resume the koi trade. The fish, appreciated as swimming jewels, represent good luck in life and business. In recent years, koi has become hugely popular in China and elsewhere in Asia. Japan's koi exports doubled over the past decade. One-fifth of them were shipped to China. Meta Platforms has struck a new deal with Chinese tech company Tencent Holdings. That's according to a report yesterday from the Wall Street Journal. The deal revolves around selling a new, low-cost virtual reality headset in China. The deal comes as Meta is trying to regain market opportunities in a country where Facebook and Instagram remain blocked. It will reportedly make Tencent the exclusive seller of Meta's headsets in China. Facebook and Twitter were blocked by Beijing in 2009. The block followed the deadly protests in China's Xinjiang province, which Chinese authorities blamed on social media sites. The VR deal gives Meta a chance to compete with TikTok owner ByteDance, which makes the VR headset Pico. According to the report, sales of the headset will start by late 2024, but so far, no mention of its potential price. As China continues building its military force and making threatening moves in the air and sea near Taiwan, the U.S. is shifting its strategy in Indo-Pacific security and its support for Taiwan's military. President Biden recently signing off on an $80 million grant to Taiwan to buy American military equipment. And it's putting a new emphasis on ground troops for Pacific defense. Earlier, we spoke with economic and national security analyst Antonio Graceffo for insights. Antonio, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. The U.S. recently granted Taiwan $80 billion to buy American military equipment under the Foreign Military Finance Program. It's not a loan, and Congress doesn't have to approve it. That seems extraordinary. Yes, it is an extraordinary step. You know, normally uh, Congress approves the budget and they approve spending. If we give uh, Taiwan our own weapons, that doesn't have to be approved by, by Congress. So there's a number of uh, methods that are now being employed by the Biden administration to provide weapons to Taiwan, bypassing the approval process. 
And what does this grant say about the state of China's relationship with the U.S. and Taiwan? Well, it clearly means that the U.S. is taking the China threat very seriously. There's been increased aggression towards Taiwan by China, and the U.S. recognizes the fact that we need to step up our support of Taiwan, and Taiwan needs to bolster its uh, defense capabilities. And the U.S. is reworking its strategy within the Indo-Pacific with a new focus on uh, small groups of mobile land forces, uh, particularly operating from islands off of China's coast. What does that signify? Is it a significant shift, would you say? Yeah, that's a very interesting development. Normally, the United States Navy, of course, is the most powerful navy in the world. Historically, we had thought that the defense of Taiwan would rely on naval power, and so Taiwan also prioritized their navy. Now what we're realizing is that there's another strategy where we would drop uh, small mobile forces onto these island chains, and they would launch uh, land-based missiles at aircraft and, and uh, PLA Navy and so forth. So this is a very interesting strategy. How do you believe that this shift could impact the security dynamics in the Indo-Pacific? I think that um, this changes everything because this means that we now have another uh, possibility, which means that our allies, such as Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, other countries, the Philippines, that are falling in line with the United States, if they increasingly uh, prioritize the defense of Taiwan, which I believe they will, then this would also allow them to participate because this would be a less uh, capital-intensive um, um, defense strategy as opposed to, say, building more nuclear missiles or, or carriers or so forth. So that would uh, amplify the U.S. ability to defend Taiwan. And how would this latest grant impact Taiwan's defense capabilities, do you think? Well, it's going to help a lot. Um, Taiwan also needs to make structural changes within its own system, particularly its recruitment and training of uh, uh, young men that are on their mandatory military uh, service in Taiwan. But this is definitely a step in the right direction. I mean, in some cases, Taiwanese troops are armed with old U.S. weapons from Vietnam or even from World War II. So by giving them things from our stockpile, we're giving them newer weapons. They're not the absolute newest, but they're dramatically better than what they have. Right. And what are your thoughts about, you know, the emerging technologies out there and Taiwan's need to adapt to that? How are they going with that in terms of the military well, defense? Taiwan is very good in technology in general. Um, and I think that in terms of sort of uh, cyber capabilities and then utilizing American satellites and so forth, I think that Taiwan uh, could definitely move in that direction, can, can easily improve in that direction, because this is a, a, a capability that they already have. It's a very well-educated society, very tech-savvy. Um, I think that now we're realizing we need to train the Army, the grunts, the ground troops, the infantry, which is something that um, Taiwan has not prioritized up to this point. And Antonio, lastly, based on your expertise, are there any diplomatic avenues or multilateral approaches that you believe could impact and help Taiwan in its defense against China's advances and without, you know, without escalating tension in the region? Right. You make two very good points there. One is that we don't want to escalate tension. So if we all agreed to recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, that might trigger a violent response from Beijing. Meanwhile, if we form coalitions and alliances in the area, then we can amplify Taiwan's defense. The, the new strategy is mostly about deterrence, just basically saying to China, look, if you invade Taiwan, the cost to you is going to be tremendous. Even if they succeed, the cost would be so um, um, detrimental to China that this would dissuade them from making that move. And of course, coalitions will amplify uh, that response.
All right, Antonio Graceffo, economic and national security analyst and the author of Beyond the Belt and Road. Thank you so much. Is the Chinese Communist Party trying to remove the name Tibet from public memory? Whistleblowers from Congress are ringing alarm bells about the issue, something that's already appeared in diplomatic documents from Beijing. What's Beijing's goal, and what could it mean for the Tibetan people? Let's dive in. Replacing Tibet with Shizong, China's top diplomat Wang Yi made the first attempt to publicize Beijing's name for the area in an October speech. One major factor is pushing the change. The Chinese regime is looking to prevent the Dalai Lama from re-establishing the independent state of Tibet. What does Shizong mean? The word is a Romanized Chinese term referring to the Tibet Autonomous Region known as Tibet. Chairman of the U.S. Selected Committee on the CCP, Congressman Mike Gallagher, showed support for Tibet in a joint statement released last month on October 18th. The Chinese Communism Party, or CCP, deployed troops to invade Tibet in the 1950s. After that point, Tibet's highest spiritual and political leader, the Dalai Lama, was forced to flee to India. I think uh, there's a very systematic and um, in some ways a devious kind of a, a way of uh, dismantling, you know, layer by layer, piece by piece, uh, different components of Tibetan culture, uh, Tibetan identity. The Tibetan plateau and its people have been ruled by the Chinese communist regime since then. For almost a century, the CCP has tried to convert and integrate Tibetan people into China's majority ethnic group, the Han group. That's in order to tighten its control of the disputed region. Reports show a series of measures have been imposed on Tibetans in China, including religious, cultural, and language suppression, while one Chinese policy even directly encouraged Tibetans to marry Han Chinese, promising benefits for their careers and daily lives. When we come back, each American soldier has their own unique story behind their service. Find out how a digital project is now sharing their legacies with the world this Veterans Day. And a nonprofit organization honors veterans with live buglers to play at taps at funeral services. Find out more about their mission after this short break. Welcome back. Munitions from the World War I era. Authorities in D.C. had to close a park after the munitions were discovered. And they warn that there could be more. Fort Totten Park is a Civil War-era fort three miles north of the capital. Back in the spring, unauthorized work by a nearby property owner pushed roughly 10 feet of soil onto the park. Two metal canisters were discovered. One munition was a 75-millimeter projectile. The other was a Leibniz projectile, which can carry flammable or toxic chemicals. Testing showed that the munitions did not pose a hazard. The National Park Service and the Army are pushing for an investigation at Fort Totten Park. The park is now blocked with cement barriers, with signs saying no trespassing. The post office and many banks are closed today in honor of Veterans Day, but technically the real holiday is Saturday. 
President Woodrow Wilson, also, who also started the draft for World War I, originally proclaimed November 11th as Armistice Day in 1919. That was to mark the end of World War I on November 11th, 1918. It was believed to be, quote, the war to end all wars. Unfortunately, it was not the last major conflict. In 1954, after fighting in the Korean War ended, President Dwight D. Eisenhower officially renamed the November 11th holiday Veterans Day. Eisenhower led Allied forces to victory in World War II, which turned out to be a greater humanitarian disaster than the First World War. While the Veterans Day holiday does not move from November 11th, it's often celebrated on the Friday before or the Monday after if it falls on a weekend. While there is sometimes confusion, Memorial Day honors America's war dead. While Veterans Day pays tribute to everyone who wore a uniform to serve their country. Every member of the U.S. military has a unique story behind their service and sometimes their sacrifice. This Veterans Day, there's been an expansion of a digital project aimed at telling those stories and an opportunity for loved ones to share their legacy. Doesn't get any easier. At Riverside National Cemetery in Southern California, Linda Monroe makes a visit to her husband of 55 years, Bob Monroe. He was a Vietnam veteran, uh, very proud of being a Marine. As she researched Riverside ahead of his burial, she came across the Digital Veterans Legacy Memorial Project. Since then, she's crafted a page full of photos and tributes that tells the story of Bob's life in service and what's happened after. Being a family member, you can go in and create an account and add all of their military history and their accomplishments. James LaPaglia is a digital services officer with the Department of Veterans Affairs. He says the goal of the Veterans Legacy Memorial Project, or VLM, which started in 2019, is to tell the stories behind the VA markers at cemeteries like Riverside. Family members and battle buddies and friends can find their veterans in a digital space and honor them by telling stories, sharing memories. Veterans Affairs populates online pages with military service and cemetery information. Family, friends, and others can submit photos and mementos, and the public can search and learn. Educating about the veteran experience is just as important as family members and others being able to tell stories and remember their veteran. Ahead of this Veterans Day, the platform doubled to nearly 10 million profiles. It includes those buried in VA's national cemeteries, Department of Defense cemeteries like Arlington National Cemetery, VA-funded cemeteries, and now those buried in private cemeteries who have a VA marker to honor their service. Linda Monroe says her husband died of pneumonia and COVID-19 in January 2021. Since then, updating Bob's page has also continued a dialogue between her and her husband with updates on grandchildren and more. You're so used when you're married talking to each other and, and things that you remember or that happened. Creating a more vivid portrait of the life one veteran lived and the legacy that lives on. And if you're looking for the page of a veteran you know, please search Veterans Legacy Memorial Project. The song Taps is something you'll hear at many funerals for veterans. But instead of musician playing the melody at many services, a recording device plays it automatically. A veteran who has performed the somber tune for almost a quarter century wanted to change that. Of all the military bugle calls, none is more easily recognized, more apt to evoke emotion than the bugle call taps. 
TAPS is our national song of remembrance. It's a bugle call that was started during the Civil War and is actually started as a lights out call, but today is used as a final farewell to our military personnel. My name is Yari Villanueva. I am currently the uh, president of TAPS for Veterans, a nonprofit organization that helps provide live buglers for military funerals. I'm also the executive director of the Doughboy Foundation. TAPS for Veterans came about uh, because we saw a need for live buglers at military funerals. In the late 1990s, a lot of the military bands were being downsized. And because of that, uh, there was a lack of military buglers available to play at funerals. At first, they thought they could use a cassette recording. Then they had a CD that was put out. But it looked very awkward to bring a boombox into a cemetery. So the idea was to have an electronic bugle, that is, an instrument that had an insert in it that would, would play taps. However, we've always thought that the better option is to have a live bugler. However, unfortunately, the electronic bugler has taken precedence over a live musician. And this is something that we thought we could uh, address and something that we could do better. We could have a live bugler. That was the impetus for forming TAPS for Veterans. We thought that it would be great to honor all veterans with a live performance of TAPS and setting up a system whereby a family in need could reach out to us on our website and, and get a bugler so that we could honor that veteran. We have well over 1,200 buglers around the country who are willing to step up and serve. The emotion of a person playing it, the, the music coming from their heart, you know, that goes through the tubing out, at, out to the people hearing it is really important. Um, a live performance is just so, uh, so much preferable over than a recorded one. I mean, no one wants to go to a symphony hall and uh, sit and listen to a recording of a symphony. They want to see and hear the live musicians playing that. We understand how important it is to, to have the, the recording, but it's really important and paramount that a live bugler, bugler be used, especially when you have one who's there willing to give their services to honor that veteran. And at the bottom line, that's what it's all about, honoring that veteran for his, his or her service to our country. Many restaurants and businesses have deals for veterans this weekend, some even starting today. Here's just a small sample of the freebies veterans and active duty military can get. This morning at Denny's, a free Grand Slam breakfast, but don't worry if you missed it. There are plenty of other breakfast offers, like a free donut at Dunkin' on Saturday, coffee and a donut at Krispy Kreme, or a breakfast combo at Wendy's. At Starbucks on Saturday, vets can get a free hot or iced coffee. At IHOP until 7 p.m. on Saturday, a free pancakes or a pancake combo. Applebee's is also offering a free meal for dine-in on Saturday. Lowe's on Saturday is giving out free collectible pins to the first 150 veteran customers at each store. For most of the deals, you do need to show a valid military ID. 
The U.S. Marine Corps is celebrating its 248th birthday today. The Continental Cong Congress established the Marines on November 10, 1775, in the lead-up to the American Revolution. The first recruiting headquarters was in the Tun Tavern on Water Street in Philadelphia. That's considered to be the birthplace of the Marines. Since then, the few and the proud have fought for America both on land and sea. In, a world, in World War I, shocked German troops called them devil dogs for their ferocious tenacity. The Marines are the military's only branch that does not have a shortage of recruits. That's without any special bonuses. R recruiters say the only reward recruits need is to be able to call themselves Marines. Coming up, how much are you planning to spend on Thanksgiving dinner? A new forecast says some items are getting cheaper this year, while others are not. And after the break, you'll meet Pearl, the emperor penguin chick living at SeaWorld San Diego. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. The countdown is on for those who celebrate Thanksgiving, and a new forecast is revealing how much your turkey dinner could cost you this year. Which items will be more expensive and cheaper? Here's a look at why the star of the holiday meal is seeing a shift in price. This year's Thanksgiving dinner is serving up some dramatic shifts when it comes to cost. Wholesale prices for turkey fell 29% in October compared to a year ago. That's according to Wells Fargo's new Thanksgiving report. The forecast is welcome news for turkey farmers and marks a major shift from last year when a wave of avian flu took out birds, leaving some farms struggling to keep up with demand, which led to higher store prices. This 2023, the Wells Fargo Agri-Food Institute says farms added 2% to 3% additional birds. And that robust supply, plus a drop in the cost of refrigerated trucks to move supply from farm to store, are contributing to the price drop. But get ready for some sticker shock, because the rest of the meal will cost you more. Everything else around it, all those side dishes, choose to spend wisely and shop wisely where you can. According to the Wells Fargo forecast, canned cranberries cost almost 60% more compared to the same time last year. So opt for fresh cranberries instead, which cost about 20% less compared to last year. And right now, production costs for canned pumpkin are 30% higher this year from last year. Russet potato prices are at an all-time high, with prices up 14% from a year ago. So consider going for sweet potatoes instead. Store prices are only up about 4%. To trim costs, experts recommend scaling back. Do you really need all that stuff? Who is actually eating this? Do we have a dish that maybe only gets two or three bites? Scrap it. If you're looking for a unique holiday experience, try heading across the pond. The London Zoo is offering sleepovers from December 18th to December 30th. Guests will stay at a winter wonderland lodge in the heart of the zoo. After checking in, they will get an exclusive tour of the lion's den before making presents for the animals, toasting marshmallows on a fire pit, and enjoying a behind-the-scenes peek at the zoo's nocturnal residence. The experience includes two full days of zoo entry at both the London Zoo and the Whipsnade Zoo. Life-size models of a woolly mammoth, an African elephant, and dwarf elephants are all part of a new display at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. We have a love affair with elephants that maybe goes back to childhood when many of us grew up with 
Dr. Seuss books or Dumbo or Ice Age movies? What we're trying to do is introduce elephants in a way that wouldn't ordinarily occur to anybody because in North America we have no experience with elephants. So a lot of their behavior, a lot of their anatomy. The secret world of elephants reveals how elephants hear with their feet, the way their ears cool their bodies, and how they use their trunks for nearly everything else. The exhibit is set to open this coming Monday. What do you name a fluffy penguin chick? More than 29,000 people cast votes at SeaWorld in San Diego. The rare female emperor penguin, Chick, is nearly two months old now. Her name is Pearl. The other two options were Pandora and Astrid, but over half of the voters thought Pearl suited her better. Pearl was the first emperor penguin born at SeaWorld since 2010, and it wasn't easy. A SeaWorld employee had to help her break out of her shell since her tiny beak is slightly malformed. We're very excited. Uh, you know, pearls are often formed during hardships endured by the host animal, and she's had a slew of challenges making it into this world, but we're just really excited that the public chose such an appropriate, really cute name. Listed as a threatened species, the emperor penguin is native to Antarctica. 17 of them live at SeaWorld. The theme park has some 300 penguins of several species in total in the penguin habitat. Pearl is expected to join the penguin colony in early 2024. The emperor penguin is the biggest of all penguin species. They can reach 3.7 feet in height and weigh up to 99 pounds. Unlike other species that produce multiple eggs a year, the emperor female lays only one egg once a year. Croatian automaker Remac has set a new world record for an electric car. Its Navira car just reached a top speed of over 170 miles per hour in reverse. Unlike an internal combustion engine car, the drivetrain of the Navira has no gears. It can go either forward or backward. The model features a four-wheel transmission powered by surface-mounted magnet motors with over 1,900 brake horsepower. The Navira also now officially holds the Guinness World Record title for the fastest speed in reverse. The dinner table is a place for good food, laughter, and building family relationships. Also important for human health and harmony. So here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body on that. Mealtime is sacred. It's a time for nourishing your mind, body, and spirit. Since ancient times, it's been a tradition that signifies far more than mere caloric intake. Throughout various world cultures and epochs, meals have taken on ritualistic meanings. Examples include friendship, respect, trust, hospitality, cultural expression, and religious significance. Humans eat to celebrate, to commiserate, to converse, and to commune. Decades of research have shown the many benefits of consistent family dinners. Children enjoy the benefits of better academic performance, higher self-esteem, better eating habits, lower risk of substance abuse and a lower risk of depression. But how do we go about approaching dinner with a fitting emphasis and care? Here are four tips. Number one, put away the phones. 
It's well known that electronic devices interfere with face-to-face -face human interaction and conversation. Children will never learn to have real conversations if they have their noses in their devices all the time. Number two, light some candles. Candles instantly dress up any eating occasion. They light up the dinner table both literally and figuratively. You will feel fancier and you will behave accordingly. Number three, use quality place settings and serving dishes and cut back on the plastic. Instead of the ketchup bottle, put the ketchup in a small bowl with a spoon. Instead of the chip bag, put the chips in a basket. We don't need corporate logos and wrappers cluttering our dinner table. And number four, practice good manners. Manners are the bloom of charity and love for others. They are an outward sign of an inward disposition. They form in us a habit of being considerate of others. So here's the good food, manners, customs and family. And Monday is World Kindness Day, an opportunity to do a good deed, pay it forward and show someone you care. To mark World Kindness Day, Krispy Kreme is offering free donuts. The first 500 people to visit a participating Krispy Kreme on Monday will get a dozen original glazed donuts. No purchase necessary. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories on Monday.